Hello, everyone. So we're just going to give you a very direct warning up front. This episode has large themes of sexual assault and very incredibly uncomfortable content about underage anime girls. So just be aware going in, this is going to be weird and we'll handle it with as much tact as it is physically possible for us to. But it's bad. Listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice, the JRPG Games Club podcast that knows if you give off an anime aura around your siblings, you might be a redhead. This is season six, episode <laughs> eight, covering the song of Nephilim in Xenosaga, episode one for the PS2. I'm your host, Chris Taylor, and my pronouns are he, him. With me today is Fletcher, he, him. Ryan Beatty, pronouns are they, them. What happened last time? In the aftermath of clearing everyone's name, Gnosis suddenly began to swarm the Kukai Foundation. Cosmos Hilbert affected them into reality, but not before they began carving up the Federation fleet and materializing inside the station itself. Our party proceeded to head into the metropolis and aggressively evacuate the civilians. But in the process, they lost Momo. We pick up from jumping between ship after ship. And this leads to us learning that she is not with Alan. And then the cutscenes begin. We jump to her waking up somewhere. A brief flashback tells us that she was captured when someone who looked suspiciously like Joachim Mizrahi lured her into an alley where Albedo opened up his weird cape like Batman and grabbed her. She follows her nose to a weird smell nearby. And oh, look, it is a Kirschwasser Realian near corpse. Cut back to the battle, one of the random fetties decides that clearly the Gnosis are appearing here because of the Kukai Foundation, which is reasonable given the information he has where they're all circling the Foundation facing it. So uh, what if we turned all our guns on that and destroyed the Foundation itself? We see every single ship immediately do this and begin aiming their guns away from the Gnosis at the Foundation. <laughs> uh, very Rama Manual, don't waste a crisis energy here. <laughs> <laughs> we cut back to Momo again, and the other Realian on her way out of this life touches Momo and transfers some of her memories over, including one where Momo's in a tube and Joachim is telling her she can become his Sakura if she does good deeds. And another one of Albedo cackling before he snaps the Kirschwasser's neck in one blow, presumably how she ended up in the position where she can't speak, and then she dies immediately after. But we see her twitch and Momo walks away because sure, why not? What the fuck was the point of that? <laughs> it's to set up the incredibly stupid reveal at the end of this episode. Mm, I forget what that is. Where the Momo that's been traveling with you the whole time is this Kirschwasser in a disguise. Is that? Oh, that doesn't work yeah. because they all look no. the same and there's a hundred dead ones. Fuck off. Yeah, that sucks. And also the Momo can speak during this dungeon. Right. Yeah. That too. <laughs> yes. That does not make any sense at all, but that's... Yeah. Whatever, man. Fuck off, Xenosaga. <laughs> I 
didn't know if you guys would have caught that because, yes, it's an incredibly stupid flub. Wow. Yeah, you just assume it's another different one because they can talk and you've already seen that there are like a hundred of these motherfuckers. Yep. It's great. But that's why she's in the exact same place this corpse is at. <sighs> On the Durandal, Guinan and Junior psychically chat and reveal that the song is the reason the Gnosis keeps swarming them. Just as they say that clearly only we can hear it because we're psychics, Xion goes, hey, anyone else got a song stuck in their head? And uh, the whole cast does a very Simpsons. No, 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 no. Yes. I mean, no. <laughs> Momo's exploration has brought her to a barely lit room, and she begins dry heaving when she trips over and realizes she is surrounded by piles of Kirschwasser corpses. So Albedo starts monologuing about how her tears must be the most precious substance in the world. All right, so just a little bit about all of the language used here around Momo and the Realians. So first, Momo is named Sakura by Joachim, who is both Mizrahi's biological daughter. So we have this creepy kind of daughter replacement thing going on. And then also Sakura is named for a cherry blossom. And then Kirschwassers are named for a colorless cherry brandy. So, it you know, there's some symbolism going on there. And then Albedo, during one of his extremely creepy monologues, makes a French pun where he calls Momo his peche or peach and then says that she's going to make him turn into a peche, which is sinner. Yikes! And... Uh, what is especially yikes about this is that after that cutscene, just to make sure that you got the yikes pun, database entries show up for the words pesh and peche inside the game if you go into the UMN database. So, like, not only is there just a bunch of, like, weird objectifying fruit imagery surrounding Momo, also she's just an object to a bunch of different unhinged older men. What is the creepier anime replacement family member trope? Is it daughter or wife? Mm. Because uh, Shadow Hearts has a wife. Yeah. Well, daughter creeps me out more in Xenosaga specifically because there's daughter and then there's whatever the fuck creepy shit Albedo wants to do as well. So it's like every daughter replacement thing has an undercurrent of horny. I'll also point out a thing that we didn't mention earlier because I didn't want to spoil it when she was introduced. Momo is very Astro Boy in that she's explicitly a replacement for a dead child made in the mm -hmm. image of that child by someone who rejects them instantly when the whole thing's done. Right. OK, so not only is it creepy inside, it is also yet another reference. Yep. Because Xenosaga fucking loves them. Yeah. Now that we're at the scene, I could comment that, yeah, she's basically Adam. I'm pretty sure that's also why her name is so short and clipped. Makes sense to me. So this is the first major censorship in this game. In the Japanese scene, Albedo snaps the Kirschwasser's arm in his lap. You can actually hear the sound on the track in the U.S. where he just drops it and there's this horrible crack and he gets up whipping out his knife. The scene continues on. He does a monologue about her purity. And in the U.S. revision, a lot of the room is suddenly a lot darker that if you've ever seen a censored TV broadcast of an anime, it's going to look familiar. Very burn shadow over certain parts of the screen. The original scene has him using the drawn knife to gorily hack off his arm and then his head at the neck. 
The US version simply has a lot of black splotches covering for gore as he rips both off and poorly zooms in to hide some of the original footage. Arm-breaking censorship? Probably good. The other stuff probably should have left it in. It's very weird given what we keep in here. My child had nightmares about Alberto ripping off and stomping at his own head. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that your child would have nightmares about that nightmarish image. Good news. He's got another scene they had to change in the second game, and that's all I'm going to say, but it's in line with this one. Hell yeah. Mm. Maybe let, don't have her in the room for it. Okay. Did he do the arm thing already at this point? Yeah, he did the arm thing. The arm thing is so fucking good when he holds the stump out to Momo and it's glowing and you're like, is it regrowing slowly? And then it just pops out and he yells boo and Momo jumps. Yeah, <laughs> it's incredible to me. Albino fucking rules in this scene. Actually, I came around on it of the second time. It is very good. My man knows what kind of video game he is in and is pulling it off. Yeah. If it weren't for the very obvious, he would be one of the best characters in this series, just yeah. for sheer fun. Absolutely. And OK, they could have handled being a creep lord differently. Like they didn't have to take the creep lord shit out entirely, but it sucks. The version of it that's in the game is just so terrible. It's so terrible. So either way, uh, he continues talking from his severed head, and then he says that he sees a man in Momo's heart. It's Rubido. And this is when Albedo begins cackling madly as he smashes his own head again, regrows it, and then looms over her in a way where she faints. So here is where it becomes clear to me that Albedo is Xenosaga's thesis that Nietzsche's philosophy is villainous. Uh, because Culture and civilization are, in Albedo's words, delusions to escape death that are of little use, like a barren woman, which is a gross way to put it. And he then goes on to say that Momo is desired because she is a perfect, untainted, pure consciousness, those things which he calls angels, because they're not tainted by the curse of trying to escape mortality like humans are. And then he wants to provide her reality that she lacks by just traumatizing her, which is extremely Nietzschean because Nietzsche has a hard on for human suffering as a character builder. And like Albedo is so fucked and scenery chewing and evil and is also the most direct representation of Nietzschean philosophy. So I feel like this game is anti-Nietzsche, not pro-Nietzsche. Oh, yeah. That's what I like about him, is that he is dumb and bad in exactly the way that Nietzscheanism is dumb and bad. Absolutely, yeah. But he also pulls it off while being, like, fun to be in a seed, except for when he's not. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, in space, the Federation fleet are half in line with the uh, we're going to blow up the Kukai Foundation on three situation when suddenly there's incredible butt rock that comes screaming out of the speakers of a massive battleship that just gates in. The commander says this is impossible and Xi'an recognizes the ship on site as the Damarung. Which is also the Rhine Maiden because the ship is made out of four ships and is stupid as hell. The Rhine Maiden <laughs> is like the options, basically, because the other yeah. four ships are just like laser gun components. Yeah, yeah, but we're probably going to end up referring to it by both names at different points. So I do want to point it out. Word. 
Um, it's also an excuse for Xenosaga to cram even more references in, this time to Wagner's ring cycle, which of course concerns an apocalypse that destroys the realm of gods and men. Long story short, the Damarung saves everyone but Miyuki, who is still alive with their sick two loudspeakers that disintegrate the Gnosis. Miyuki calls Shion instantly. She's on board the ship. And uh, since Cosmos is nearby, she has a plan. She also does brag about getting a transfer to second division. Like, not the time, Miyuki. <laughs> hey, so you didn't want this job and I actually took it. So now we're equal, Shion. Hi. <laughs> Some kind of force field nearby is A, cloaked, and B, responsible for summoning the Gnosis. So they're going to give Cosmos a star-destroying, like, black hole gun nuke thing, and they're going to use this to make the um, source of the field visible and solve their problems. At this point, over Xion's incredibly reasonable objections to using such an obscene device, Junior suspiciously walks up and goes, Hey, Shion, that thing is the Song of Nephilim, Joachim Mizrahi's most insane invention ever, which destroyed Milsha and summoned the Gnosis in the first place, so you should let her use the gun. <laughs> Nobody questions this. Then, cut to Cosmos, tumbling end over end in space outside the Foundation. She then proceeds to take out this device, which, yeah, no, it just, like, the image of Miyuki just UMN phasing a weapon of mass destruction over <laughs> over to another ship like no big deal is so fucking great but anyway yes she proceeds to take out the device slot it into what is a clearly a revolver and then the revolver turns into a battleship sized cannon on her shoulder hell yeah it's so fucking sick it's so sick <laughs> The single Gradius laser she fires causes a massive set of rings to appear and then coalesce into a space pyramid. We hard cut back to Albedo as the ship he is obviously on appears in real space. Yo, last chance to duck out for content warnings. I'm giving you five seconds. This is the other big one. The U.S. scene is Albedo's hand glowing ominously over Momo while she lets out some incredibly unpleasant dialogue that's really clearly bad touch shit. The Japanese scene, on the other hand, is very end of Ava, where he shoves his hand inside her body as she tells him to no, stop, get out of me, and crying. If you're wondering why the incredibly low-res close-up on her face is in the U.S. cut, it's because that's literally all they could show of the original footage and just zoomed into a quarter of the screen. They still left in the uh, stirring rice into chili sounds. Yeah, yep. it's still so clear from the audio that it is supposed to read as a profound violation and something that we should clearly be uncomfortable with but there is this like tone of it that's almost like <laughs> isn't this twisted like it's too edgelordy at the end of the day to give the gravity to the situation that it requires and so the entire thing just smells and tastes and seems so off and rancid and makes me want to take like six showers and unrecommend this game to people i fucking ugh, i hate it i think if you cut the audio it would be fine yeah because then it just comes to like an evangelion like mind pillage right which is mm -hmm. still equally violating but isn't 
gross when combined with the edgelordiness. Right. I mean, it's explicitly the same thing Gendo does in End of Ava, where he shoves an arm into Rey. That's all it is. It's not mm -hmm. sexual, but cutting out what is happening and leaving the sounds makes it sound so much worse. Yeah, well, and the relationship, the kind of predatory relationship and the glee and predation that Albedo is established to have is going to kind of paint a leering tone to the whole thing regardless. And I, you know, I believe you that it feels less sexual in the Japanese, in the original, but um, Albedo's too much of a sicko for me to not have it feel sexual assaulty. They did the worst possible thing. Yeah. yeah. By cutting away from what's actually visually happening and leaving the sound in. They made it worse. It's straight up an Ava reference. I'm I guarantee it, given that this isn't really a thing he does anywhere else, but they did make a weird choice with how this was done instead of just removing it or making the whole scene nothing but black and her voice over it. You could just right. have Ziggy, I'm scared. Absolutely. Anyhow, that's it. We cut back to the Durandal, thank God. <laughs> At this point, Junior hears Momo's voice and suddenly everyone begins knowing everything all around the room in turn. Oh no, Momo's there and Albedo's there too. Uh, Ziggy says he'll just borrow a shuttle and head towards the song, but Junior says he's going to take care of it. So they have like some fucking logic off about just, <laughs> yeah. it's the worst. Oh, so bad. This is the worst line in the game, hands down for me. The day numbers and battle strategies replace people, it'll be game over, cyborg. This is Junior's response to being told, don't confront your evil anime twin if it's going to make you lose your cool and risk killing all of us. <laughs> Fuck off, Junior. Uh, he's such a selfish little petulant baby who thinks he's so cool and stoic, and he's just a selfish little baby boy. How would you like an entire game about him? Uh, oh, I can't wait. Cannot yep. wait, Fletcher. Yep. I'm very excited. <sighs> I hate Xenosaga 2 so much. Look, Junior is mechanically the best member of the party, just like in terms of just obliterating enemies in one and two. I think in three, Jin is better at that, but yes, it's mm -hmm. it's wild. So you just have this fucking manlet who also is the best. It's great, great power dynamic for Junior. <laughs> I love that. I'll save it for next season, but I have a lot of problems with Junior taking focus in that game. Unfortunately, we have to go get locked into the song now. Xion will have a flashback and we will discover that this thing was buried on Milsha as a public art installation years before, conspicuously right next to the hospital where her mom was convalescing. Yeah, what was the point of that? Um, I think to show the audience that Xion is as crucial of a part of this overall story as everybody else that we've met and isn't just the audience stand in passerby, that she has a mystical purpose because she's been near this shit all along. Is she, though? Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. This is where we start seeing the images of her that are the same as the images of Ellie from Xenogears, where she is like nude like Ellie from Xenogears that are supposed to jog our minds to be like, oh, she's important here. That was lost on me. I'm not going to lie. 
we have other things for that, like the Ellie images. Like, we get those now, so whatever. We get to the dungeon and we immediately find Momo inside the door in the docking zone. However, Albedo has, quote, reversed the spiritual link inside her, basically undoing the thing that um, Junior and Guinan can do. And thus, she is a mute doll for this dungeon, at least in the plot. Uh, not in the battle, though. Damn it. I didn't try, but I was like, this could only yeah. be an improvement. Yeah. No, she's still talking in those. And if you use her to find a certain accessory in this place, she has commentary. Mm -hmm. you know, like if she's your lead. Mm, OK, is it at least in parentheses? Nope. No. Nice job. They just don't factor that in. Nice work, Zeno Saga. Yeah. So we get into the dungeon proper and the first hub area, we can see what the dungeon is built of, which is these three extremely tall cylindrical towers that have uh, ball lightning kind of coursing in between them. And this is three towers, which are all different puzzle dungeons. Uh, this is also the dungeon that absolutely jokerified me. Tell me about it. Tell me why. Well, because I enjoy the idea of having kind of three consecutive mini puzzle dungeons in a row, but these dungeons are so bland visually. The floors that you're going to on the first elevator are basically identical and are useless to travel through. And each puzzle dungeon just goes on for a little bit too long. And it's the old I get it button thing where I understood what the dungeon was trying to communicate like half an hour before I was done with each little individual section of it. And it ended up being an absolute slog because of it. Can I take tower one? Because I can put this in the most succinct way that sums up why this would jokerify a person. Absolutely. I think Tower 1 is only bad if you don't figure out what's going on immediately. And I don't know how you could not because it tells you that, right? Like, that's what the if you interact with a button before you've done anything, it tells you that it's like correlated to something. So what you just do is blow them all up, go to the top uh, and on your way up, just write a note because it shows you the signs as you go up and then slide down the tube and hit them all from the bottom up. Right, but it doesn't tell you that only floors three and six have anything that you actually need. But, you know, beyond that, the interior of each floor is identical. It has one battle with robots that you can't avoid and then one that you can avoid. And then, you know, maybe a switch and maybe you just take a tube down to the bottom. All right, let me let me spin this. When you walk into Tower One, 
There is an elevator with boxes on it and a spire in the center of it that you can that will light up when you can interact with it. However many boxes you blow up will determine if it lifts to a floor. If it's lit up, you can use it, you're up. If you blow up everything, it takes you to the top. Every floor is, I think they are all identical, save a couple of doors, because yep. some of them have doors that go outside. All of them have the same dead end. And the doors outside are positioned in such a way where you cannot see them at all. And the roof is barely differentiated. And I had to look up where the button was just because mm. it's hard to tell there's even a door there. Yep. So you're basically blind guessing. There are no real hints visually or otherwise as to which floors contain content. They are all identically laid out. The only way to tell that anything's different is to see what door you walk into from the central elevator room. All of them have a chute that will drop you back at the bottom of the elevator where the boxes have respawned. That's very funny, by the way, because your animation makes it look like you were doing the running man the whole way down this fall. <laughs> yeah. And the big thing is that towers one and two share a lot of enemies, including the shot crabs. Shot crabs are robotic tanks that bombard the party with grenades. And this is incredibly fatal. They will start appearing in groups of uh, four or five by the end of this. Have you guys been engaging with increasing your stats with T-points? Yes. Not me. Okay. I pump my evasion all the way up and the grenades miss a lot once you hit like 40. Well, that's great for you. I'm happy for you. Um, <laughs> not only... Not only was I uh, not engaging with increasing my stats using T-points, but also I came in here underleveled because I was impatient and didn't actually do the maintenance work by going to Dot Colony and going and doing the old Encephalon dives in between last episode and this one. So I was like maybe five levels under where I should have been and... I had a miserable time in this dungeon. I started just running from every battle that had four or more shot grabs because I knew it would wipe me. And I will stress, when we said you get locked in, we mean you are locked in until you are done with all three towers and a boss rush here. Yeah, Captain Matthews tells you that he won't leave without Momo. Right. Yeah. So all you're doing in each of these towers is trying to reach the correct floor each time to flip a switch that activates a dynamo. You power all three, you go to the boss rush. You need to hit three floors in this first one, but there are six or seven, which is kind of an issue. Tower two is a top-down maze you enter from the highest part, where you can take a variety of branches off the central spoke of the top floor and follow endless ladders up and down. If this were 2D, this would be load runner. You would be in a load runner level. This is also where the flamethrower realians pop up is tower two. And those flames, if you don't have fire resistance, can do a bunch of damage just like the grenades can. So they can be party killers pretty quickly. I actually think this is the best tower to grind for XP. I want to shout out the uh, beam rifle realians who I like in battle because A, they're interesting in that they react to being the subject of a direct attack. Like if you target them specifically rather than an all attack. They'll um, boost into shooting you with a beam rifle. And also because they make the battle a little more visually interesting because the camera will zoom in on them as they pivot to actually aim at the person they're going to shoot instead of just shooting in general. 
Mm-hmm. It makes the battle a little more visually interesting, and they're, like, mechanically fun. Though the real mechanically fun tower is Tower 3. Yes, but we're not there yet. Uh, also hellish in this one, the minimap is completely flat. No elevation marker. You just see alien-style proximity readings. So it's very irritating, and you'll constantly have it look like you're being swarmed because there's two dipshits a floor beneath you. I like that, though, because generally speaking, you can use where in the minimap the yellow triangles for the enemy are in relation to your triangle to figure out where you haven't been yet to help you navigate the maze because it's like, oh, there's one to my left. You don't necessarily know if he's on the bottom floor, but it definitely, if you follow that, I wound up going everywhere without even like trying to remember where I had been up and down. So because of how the camera's locked, if something is off screen, it means you're going, is that beneath me? Or am I about to get attacked if I walk over five steps? Yeah, if you kill every guy on the way down, you can use that to navigate. Right, but not all of us were killing every guy on the way down, Chris. Some of us were running liberally, which made this minimap kind of nightmarish for me. I bet it did. Um, if you follow one of the spokes to its limit, you'll go into a new room, which responds all of the enemies, sadly. But in there is a destructible box, and if you blow it up, it contains the Athra 26 series, which is a human gnosis hybrid experiment and a uh, pretty intense mini boss. The fight is either extremely easy or very hard, depending on your party configuration due to the gimmick. Series 26 will develop immunity to each element and not just element, but also damage type, including like slash spirit and pierce after you use it on them, which means it's possible to have this fight turn into nothing but physical damage harming them, which they can also grow a resistance to for the record. Uh, If you bring the wrong crew, you're in trouble. You can quickly kill it with Cosmos and two eggs and just go ham on it. Uh, Luckily, I wound up killing this on the literally the last thing I had that would do damage. Whoa. Very intense. Uh, When you kill it, it gives you Decoder 2, which is uh, great. And it is right in front of the address uh, 12. So if you're going to completion, you will, in fact, have to kill it. So now is the time. Don't want to come back here. At the very bottom of the tower, you will discover the puzzle here. One switch lowers the platform from the top so you can cross the bottom, also blocking your save point in the process. And when you've done so, you can access two destructible capacitors on the bottom floor, from opposite sides of course, which will open the path forward. This is very funny to me because when you blow them up, there's just two holes in the ground, so it's like they were plugged into enormous U.S. uh, power outlets. That's very (laughs) funny. Yeah. That is funny. You do fight like eight guys here, though, because there's uh, two guys on the bottom, and you're going to kill them because you're not sure where to go, and then you go into the middle, and you're blocked. You go in the middle because, of course, you do. You just want to see what's up, and then you Mm -hmm. go back, and you have to fight one more guy to get to the door, go in there, blow it up, go back. That guy is respawned, and then there's the other guy on the other side. So you feel like eight guys to solve this puzzle. Yeah, it can really slow down this puzzle a lot. Opening this path summons the next boss, Rhiannon C. The scene where the boss enters is sick because this is a mermaid gnosis that kind of flies down the tower in a spiral pattern and then just like very slowly blocks our path and just we probably could have outrun it. We probably could have, but we waited patiently for it to do its opening entrance before we engage it in battle. It's incredibly one winged angel. It's very one winged angel, one winged mermaid. 
this boss can go from perfectly okay to I'm in hell based on RNG and also how much of its AI manipulation you engage in. If you ever need to make it waste a turn, hit it with a status effect. It will then use Giga Flush, a move that nullifies all status on the entire battlefield, your party included. It also has an HP drain move. The problem with this HP drain move is that it's percentage based. So if it targets a robot, it's going to get way more HP back. And so if you enter this battle over leveled, yeah, you're more fucked. It's a uh, it was 350 on my party members. And then if you're keeping on top of the eggs, it, uh, frame upgrades and stuff, it is about 1000 to 1200 HP, depending on the mech that it hits. It is a uh, rough because it's also hard to damage because it is ranged, but also spirit resistance. It's weak to fire. Right. Right. With the party I have of Xion Chaos Cosmos, really your only good fire damage is uh, Xion's um, Firecracker, Triangle Triangle, because Chaos's fire wings do not do that much damage. You can have grenades on the robots right now. But they're limited, right? They're ammo limited. Yeah, but if... you lock them to a w action i think you can lock them to a w action and then so you can um double the damage with that or more than double it often especially on a crit turn well i'm also trying not to use my robots because uh how busted their loadout is yeah this is the one boss where being a little bit under leveled will probably do my advantage because the HP drain numbers were much smaller. Also, I was using Chaos to clear the anti-boost status and then just boosting Xion to hell for her fire attack, and it helped. Also, if we discussed how Flame Wings is just a King of Fighters joke. Oh, is it? It's very Terry Bogart. Yeah, I guess you're right, it is. I got through this one because the junior is so extremely strong because I had maxed out his strength at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and then he also had the plus two attack ring and then also the plus two attack extracted from the ring, which doubles up if you're also wearing the ring. So my man had like 95 strength and did a gajillion damage. It was like 700 around. Nice. Mm hmm. It was more of a war of attrition for me. I was doing small numbers damage, but it never really overwhelmed me because the other attack is binding chains, which is a move that locks down the entire party's ability to boost. However, if you keep chaos in your party and just use purifying storm, it it's basically a turn waster where you're not getting dealt damage. And so you can keep manipulating the AI to induce an easier time for yourself. But if it starts to spam healing and damage you at the same time, it's going to be a rough one. It can also really fuck your shit up by um, pushing you into a back row, which also makes you waste turns. It's like it is a fun boss and that it's like very tug of worry because it's not directly threatening because it doesn't have AOE moves. Mm -hmm. It does have AOE status, though, you know, binding chains and all. Yeah, but that's fine, right? Like. Boost is bonus damage, not necessary, right? It's not like crippling in the same way that AoE damage is. It is a handy tool that you're kept from using. Yeah, term, turn manipulation is the name of the game for me. So boost is extremely important. Speaking of, Tower 3 is a tower of things that all look like Gnosis, but are all biological type. All-time nightmare shows that uh, Momo's dad really loved Silent Hill to make, deciding to produce these. <laughs> They're cool. Byproduct 145 is a real prick, a critter that has a roll for instant death attack, and also the ability to bind one of your keys, preventing that character from using any moves on the button. 
it'll usually spawn with a guy behind it that speeds them up and slows you down. It's real great. Um, all of the guys can lock your buttons, but they can each only lock one different button. The gimmick on this one is the main room path uh, as you going up and down ladders, and there are crates you can blow up beneath a pair of bridges. You only need to destroy enough to lower the bridge so that you can cross, and you will have to leave and re-enter the room at least once for all treasure, probably more because it's unlikely you're going to intuit the path forward on your first run. Then, in the basement, you get to solve a puzzle involving three more towers of destructible objects. A generator a room over plays three tones, and you need to destroy each stack until it is making the matching sound. Not just that, the light that emanates from the generator when it makes the sound is the correct height and tells you how many you need to blow up. So that way, if even if like can't hear, you can still solve the puzzle. Didn't actually know about the height thing, so good catch. That's that's how I solved it, because I am tone deaf. Got it. Doing this lets you move on to the last dynamo and head to the basement goth lair of the song, which contains albedo, Momo, and cutscenes. To put this cutscene in short, the mute Momo that's been traveling with us has actually been one of Albedo's Kirschwashers, which begins choking Junior from behind. Uh, this does not make any sense at all, given the previously discussed dialogue. She's been using Momo's attack and speaking the whole time. Junior does a big energy burst and uh, flings it backwards across the room, and Albedo begins taunting him. Momo is still in his lap as he tries peeling back more layers of her mind for more data. Shion is going, I do not know what he is made of to keep her growing his head like that, but it's not nano machines, and we don't have regenerating head models yet. And then that's when Chaos reveals that Albedo and Junior are URTVs, manufactured weapons to defeat Udu. Unfortunately, Albedo seems to have merged with the being, and that's what has rendered him immortal. Junior does a big Zawarudo, and time freezes as the room goes into negative. So I have a couple of notes on the metaphysics of this, because it seems like a lot of psychobabble bullshit, but there is a consistency here. The first thing is that, so all we know about Udu is that it is a being of consciousness. And we also know that Albedo talks about how pure consciousness can take any form that it wants so long as it craves reality and to stay alive. And we know that Albedo, who used to be a being made of something that can counteract this consciousness known as Udu, got his mind broken by touching pure consciousness, which is kind of very Lovecraft, like ancient alien breaks the mind of person who gets too close. And now he can create matter out of that pure consciousness. Um, it's very woo-woo, but it's not shit that makes zero internal logic, I guess, is... There is internal consistency within, like, all of the made-up shit. Right. So then, we realize that Albedo has cracked Momo's brain, and he is looking at what we've heard called the Y-data, which is Mizrahi's research notes. Images rush past, but the last thing that we see before Junior's tantrum blows him out of his mind meld is images of the party. We also see a flash of Cosmos. We see a flash of... 
Shion looking like Ellie. And we also hear Mizrahi say that all of his experiments were actually to try to stop the inevitable instead of try to create something. So that's something to keep a note of as well. But then Albedo looks over at Cosmos and Shion and goes basically like, ah! <laughs> because he's got secret knowledge that we do not. This is enough for him to float up to his robot, the E.S. Simeon, have it swallow a Kirschwasser for fuel, and become our next boss fight. The first half of this fight is very dull. If you brought a robotless party member, then they are a waste of space and will be targeted more frequently as the only person in the front row. So, interestingly, uh, I did not personally get into the robot at all for this battle, but... Oh my god, dude. Yeah, wow, man. Did not get into the robot. Uh, I have a pretty buff Cosmos, and she did zero and 35 damage on some of her strongest attacks. This thing is scaled for mechs. Yeah, it's scaled for mechs, but my party of Shion Jr. and Chaos got through it somehow. Well, it's because eggs have very low ether defense and insanely high physical defense. So that party does do a lot of ether damage, but... I just did not want to deal with how much damage was being dealt to me. So I also got in the robot. Yeah, it makes sense. The mechs not being able to boost just breaks them in my brain because my entire game revolves around boost at this point. And so I get so impatient with the mech battles that I'd rather just tough out everything in human form. We'll see if that continues in the conclusion. Who knows? Uh, I definitely had the perfect eggs loadout for this fight. Um, oh, awesome. Because he does a lot of slow stuff. And I had the uh, cockpit cleaner when you guard, as well as the heal. We we're basically able to just hammer him to death over 15 minutes. He also stops boosting when he gets low, which actually makes it uh, makes it where you actually have to boost to manipulate the turn order since he was going on um, points up. So I then just boosted into um, his last hit and got got a got a nice points times four on this. Nice. So. After you get him down to half health, he starts monologuing about how frail everyone is. And every time this happens, he'll zoom in on a target, which is the game letting you know that that person is about to take some massive damage unless you do something about it. It's like 250 in an eggs while guarding. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. He also has a full party shotgun spread at this point that will do 300 to 400 damage to everyone.
And when this fight is over, the cutscenes go crazy again. Momo will learn from the dying Kirschwasser that all of them, despite being the same model, were jealous of her because Daddy liked a tiny little white magical girl more than the mass-produced dark skin models. Cool. Junior and Albedo have a straight-up anime aura battle, which is so intense that Guinan, Mary, and Shelly begin screaming, Don't do it on the Durandal. <laughs> I thought something was going to come of that, like, because I know Game 2 is Udu stuff, like, maybe, like, Junior unseals Udu, but them yelling, Don't do it, is just, like, comes to nothing. Weird non sequitur. Yep, because before it can play into whatever Albedo clearly wants to happen, Momo walks up, starts nullifying both of their auras and goes, hey, Dick, I got some of you and me, too, and starts interrogating him to no end whatsoever. Shion then interjects, lecturing him about how terrible he was to all those realians, and a voice from the sky goes, still all this moralizing crap, huh? And a blue caped man tears a hole in reality to teleport down, having Albedo run off with quit screwing around. The blue man solos the party as Albedo flies away in Simeon. In space, Albedo starts trying to review the Y data, then an image of Cosmos rebuffs him, and a naked Xion just comas furiously at him. He calls this some kind of protection. So we learn that Crow Guy sounds like a nihilist. He's talking about how nothing has inherent meaning. Uh, it's all in what we give it. And... After that little nihilism chat where he's like, you know, basically they ask him who he is and he goes, who the fuck cares? Names don't have a meaning unless you inscribe a meaning into it. And then he turns into a gnosis and it is a uh, two phase boss. And uh, the first phase is Ein Rugel and he goes down fairly easy. Um, he does all physical attacks and I think one weak lightning spell. And like, since it's all physical attacks and my evasion was so high, I took literally no damage on phase one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, phase two is where he goes nuts, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. You get him down to zero health and he transforms and you don't get any respite. You don't get any time to heal or recalibrate. He then also turns into a flying boss. And so short range attacks no longer work on him. For what it's worth, you should steal the master's pendant from Ein Rugel. It doesn't have a drop since it doesn't have an end of battle screen, but it does have a rare to steal. Yes. The other stuff he does is he'll do a lot of confusion, mm -hmm. which, uh, can be rough. Uh, luckily, the Xion Jr. Chaos body has two ways to deal with it. So even if Chaos gets confused, you can still use Refresh. Mm -hmm. So he has different kind of damage shields that go up and down over the course of the battle. So like at first he's shielded against ice damage, but then you'll get uh, a note after he casts Eternal Storm that ice damage is now what he's weak to. And it's not like he's shifting affinities so much as different resistances are going up and down throughout the fight. But the two really big things that you have to worry about are that he casts anti-veil, which supremely lowers your ether defense. And then he casts eternal storm, which is an AOE that can do up to 700 damage on characters. Uh, and even more uh, if anti-veil is still on. Very glad that I both remembered to set Purifying Storm and Transferred Medica all as a chaos also. Oh my god, yeah. Also, you want the Master's Pendant because it's an accessory that you can draw a permanent plus 25 XP from. Hell yeah. Cannot wait to be level 5 and extract the swimsuit for tech points. 
hot damn. Um, almost every battle that I've seen in Let's Plays after the point where people can and equip the swimsuit on Shion have the swimsuit on Shion, and it's just like, I guess it's good to know that every single LP of Xenosaga Episode 1 is the same kind of anime horny. I nearly bought a Shion statue when these games were new. I can't talk. Who could have foreseen <laughs> this outcome when Cosmos literally just did the classic anime wallpaper of anime waifu lady shooting enormous gun? <laughs> um, so after the battle, Virgil gets defeated and calls Chaos boss and then escapes. Also, the guy is Virgil. He reveals himself there like right. a few yes. minutes from now. But worth <laughs> noting that the guy in the mask is Virgil. The Blue Testament Virgil. Yes, uh, who we just beat in Gnosis form twice. Uh, we head back with revived Momo, who now has the knowledge of all of the Kirschwasser realians inside her. We go back to the Durandal, and Virgil and Utic issue the team a challenge to come to Old Milsha. Our party seems totally shell-shocked and confused after those last three boss battles, which totally understand. Fair. Mm-hmm. Here, also, Junior's like, hey, are you okay? And Momo is really let down by the voice direction in this game because it's so focused on being, like, young anime girl that it has almost no emotion to it. It kind of... So, I'm going to piggyback off that. There's a... Very bad trend among anime where for young characters, they try to get a young sounding voice instead of a voice actor. Mm. Momo is a giant casualty of this, but because I have this opportunity, let me tell you about the time the Sonic series thought for a while that Tails should be voiced by an actual eight year old child. Hell yeah, dude. It oh my God. Did not go well. And that got removed as soon as possible. But at least Sonic Heroes, and I'm pretty sure all of the Sonic X anime, just use a fucking child to do Tails, and it's terrible. That sounds awful. If you ever want to just hear how bad this is, just look up clips. It's great, by which I mean you will constantly cringe. <laughs> Hell yeah. Okay, so we think that the Song of Nephilim is now inactive, that we have rendered it inert. But all of a sudden, kind of in the aftermath of all of this, the Durandal tries to shoot all of its missiles at the Song of Nephilim, and all of a sudden, they all get magically deflected at the last second. It's cool. It is cool, and the Song of Nephilim suddenly starts activating again, and all of the Gnosis in the area are getting sucked inside of it. Albedo has somehow activated this gigantic like plate plateau of uh it's final destination yes exactly it's <laughs> it's final destination from from smash use your items though it'll be rough <laughs> yes uh and this thing is called proto merkaba and it is where momo was born but that wasn't its only purpose. Its actual purpose was created to discover the true form of the universe that humans were meant to achieve, which is interesting. Then Joachim Mizrahi took it, and after the Milshan conflict, it got thrown into the abyss, which is the double black hole that exists where old Milsha used to be. 
they did this because it is not a complete unit by itself. Um, it receives power from the waves the Zohar emulate and also from um, the Song of Nephilim, which like inserts into the top and um, can absorb a gnosis also for power. So now we have a Starkiller factory just active again, and it's in the hands of Utic. Cool. Right. And Albedo starts actually firing up the energy because there are some reserves left. Also, by the way, um, during all of this, Yuli Mizrahi and the circle of powerful people inside the Federation that we cut to from time to time, they are now on the call with the Durandal. Um, so they're talking through some of this. Glad to see Zoom will still be popular. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And Albedo turns this death laser on the Federation fleet that is still parked outside of the Kukai Foundation and disintegrates all of them cackling. Um, I'm still not sure if this is what Utic wants or just what Albedo wants. Just Albedo. Okay, because, yeah, Albedo was hired by Utic, but then very quickly decided that he wanted to do his own thing, but is still sort of working for Utic at the same time. Yeah, they condemn him for being like obsessed with new toys, um, mm -hmm. because basically I think that this is beneath whatever they're after. Right. And so that Federation fleet, which was a massive fleet, is just gone. And Shion recognizes the kind of disintegrating light as the same thing that came out of Cosmos that disintegrated all those gnosis and remarks on that. Uh, yeah, she she recognizes that when Albedo uses the Song of Nephilim to absorb all of the Gnosis to repower the Proto Merkaba. Mm -hmm. Yep. So then Albedo turns the laser in the direction of the Kukai Foundation, cackles and communicates to everybody that it probably has about five to ten minutes before it's fully charged and could disintegrate Kukai as well. And Junior's like trying to appeal to his sense of um, fair fighting or morals or something is like, no, this doesn't concern the whole universe. This is just between you and me, which is very selfish and short-sighted of him. But he then challenges Albedo and Albedo says, okay, um, if you can meet me at Proto Merkaba, I guess we can see if you'll stop me. But what's unclear to me is if, he's still going to disintegrate Kukai in 10 minutes or if he's just like going to hang out and wait because he's interested in Junior's challenge. I think he's going to hang out and wait um, because him and uh, Junior basically like continually tangle all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he just wants Junior. He really doesn't care about the rest. Destroying the Kukai Foundation is just Joker lighting the pile of money on fire. He's just doing it for fun. Totally, totally. He's waiting for the other guy to show up and give him the real show. OK, for what it's worth, I have one reveal that will probably make the two of you very angry. The DS port just combines these two dungeons into one thing. Uh, that would be the worst. No, no, no. It, it tightens oh. up both of them. So they're oh. just final dungeon. Oh, my God. Yeah. OK, that would be way better if it if it truncates it. That sounds great. I thought yeah, that it just like massively. Oh, shit. Mm, I don't know. Like if Saga Nephilim was two towers, it would be fine. Tower three, I think, is interesting enough to be by itself. And you could just basically yeah. cut out tower one and just have it be tower two. From memory, that's what it does. Nice. 
because Tower 3 is where the interesting encounters are, and Tower 2 is at least fun to navigate. Like, mm-hmm. climbing ladders is fun in Xenosaga. Yeah, it basically turns each tower into a couple of rooms instead of being whole spaces of repeated area. And then just halfway through with the boss fights, suddenly you find yourself deposited in the thing, but you can also leave. Okay. And what happens after this is we get a debrief with uh, Yuli Mizrahi, who tells us that Proto Merkaba is basically a series of tunnels. It's, what it basically is, is it's the uh, end dungeon from um, KOTOR. Uh, it's just a huh. bunch of tunnels all leading to a reactor, which if you blow it up, will stop Proto Merkaba. And uh, that's what we're set to do. And that is the end of the narrative for the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, where are we at with our parties? Uh, Ryan, you sound very underleveled. Yeah, but in a way that, like, it's still fun. The game is still letting me engage with it as my underleveled self. You know, the shot crabs wiped me one too many times and made this particular dungeon kind of hell. But, you know, I was able to get through the boss battles, which are very difficult boss battles. At least two of them are. So, you know, I'm underleveled. But one little perk is uh, something that you and I did immediately after when we can finally go back to the dot colony and get that final segment address, which is complete the giant robot. The giant robot is incredible. Oh, my goodness. Fletcher, why don't you describe it? I'm not a fan of combiners, but it was it was pretty wild because it's portrayed well. So if you've been bringing the parts back, every pair of parts up until the head that you bring to the professor will get you a summon for Shion. The third one, the head turns into a little gummy ship style attacker. And the fourth part, the fourth scene, the body, will have the professor and assistant Scott split off because the professor drinks too much. But when you have the body, you can reunite them and their shared passion and sudden sobriety and hangovers will allow them to create the ultimate giant robot, Erde Kaiser. (laughs) There is some good dunking where he says, you know, you can't make a giant robot without the power of friendship. Just (laughs) yes. These little skits, we're underselling them because it's really hard to just convey them in quick and brief, but they're very good, especially if you're a fan of cheesy 70s robot anime. This is very Getter Robo. They're 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 clearly fans of it, but they also recognize the way in which they're all shitty and the same. Totally. Yeah, it's the dunk that only a fan can make. And they use the limited animations that they've put into this game to the best effect. There's more physical comedy than keyboarding is so good. It's keyboarding is amazing. The professor has this agitated pose that makes it look like he has to piss at two times speed. (laughs) (laughs) Piss world part two. Yes, it's. It's amazing. These are incredibly funny. And if you could just look up a compilation on YouTube, they're a very funny little like five to ten minute bit. Yeah. And then the summoning spell that you get for completing the giant robot is so hype. So these psychedelic spirals show up on the screen and then each of these gigantic parts is flying into the center. And as they're all combining, we get these flashes of Japanese characters and the figure of um, a badass woman in front of a moon, uh, just like ching, 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 ching. I assume it spells Erde Kaiser and then like some slogan they made up, like fight for justice or whatever. 
word. Yeah, it has a, it has a catchphrase when it forms. Oh, right. Yes. And then it can do nine, 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 nine damage. And it only yeah. takes 30 ether points. To put this in perspective, you get 99 tops if you max out the stat. A common person will probably have 40 to 50 in this chunk of game. Yeah, that's about where I'm at. But also, like, buying all those med kits at the beginning dramatically warped the resource economy because now I have a billion ether packs and could never run out even if I used this every battle. <laughs> yeah, I kind of shat on you because I knew what the cumulative effects of you doing that at the start were going to be. If you don't take care of that at the beginning, you will constantly be on an even keel with an economy that's balanced around a little bit of scarcity or a little bit of grinding, and you sort of blew the curve out of the water through its throat. <laughs> I appreciate JRPGs as a cumulative resource optimizer. It used to be that I would also not use them at the end, but now I'm like, fuck that. Let's burn five boost packs right now because I got them. Yeah. The consumable items in this game, they have a utility, which doesn't it's like, you know, popping a healing item in a Final Fantasy game isn't something that I ever feel like I need to do because I've got magic right there. And also uh, those games are often not that difficult. But here the items come in handy because what if my character doesn't have that spell or what if I don't want to waste that EP on that thing right now? It's it's good. I like using items. It's good. Oh, also, the Erde Kaiser takes up all of your ether slots. Yeah, that too. I will also say if you enjoy that sort of thing, Chris, the Trail series is 1000% a game you would love in terms of economy versus systems and resources. They all they all got to come out. I'm not going to get invested in a thing that I might not be able to fully consume. Um, You can do everything but Crossbell right now. I don't know what that is. is weren't, weren't some in the middle missing? Yeah, Crossbell is the one that's in the middle, sadly. So you can do all of Sky now, and it's a complete thing. You could also do all of Cold Steel now, and it's a complete thing. But, like, I am also waiting for Crossbell uh, before I hit Cold Steel. Just stop after Cold Steel 2. 3 and 4 are the only ones you really need Crossbell on. Okay. I'm just not going to play any of them. All of the UKs okay. just finished coming out, so I got stuff to do. Yeah, word. Not six. Six isn't out yet. Yeah. Well, six will be out by the time I get to it. March is not that far away. All right. Well, if you want to do three Yakuza games in two months, go nuts. <laughs> I'm not going to play any of the side quests. I decided that I don't really care about them. What? Yeah. I can't. I can't with that. I'm sorry. This is the most sickos thing you've said in years. <laughs> I'm just here for the sick crime drama. The side quests are fine and funny, but like... I don't need a lot of that. See, it provides a lightness and humanity that often, not always, but often I don't find in the main quest that I'll probably do a couple. OK, I'm not going to like do the Ubisoft thing where you clear out the world, progress the main story, re-clear out the world. There's usually only like 60 over the course of the whole game. That's so many. No, you just do five per chapter. Also, I'll probably 100% like the real estate stuff or whatever. So like I ain't got time for all of that. Plus the side quest, plus the main story. I'll mm. do the grindy shit, but I won't do the bits with comedy writing. That's true. My <laughs> God. It's true. Look, yeah, I'm you are a sicko. 
<laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> Disgusting. I need more of my man about to get killed by his best friend in front of a car in the woods at midnight and less of, I don't know, all that other bullshit. <laughs> fuck off. All that other bullshit like raising a child? Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> wow. Uh, so like at some point, like the end of this episode had so much... Um, I feel like the imagery and the symbolism that they're playing with has way more purpose than I gave the game credit for initially. Also, they just say, fuck you. The story's going to start now. Yeah, for yep. that's also true. <laughs> but like, <laughs> like we get here, um, it's like with Albedo being white and talking about turning people into pillars of salt because he has been like he's got gnosis powers now, essentially. And uh, so he's talking about red will become white, which is blood will become salt, which is also he's going to be ascendant and Rubido Jr. is going to die. Like all of those things at once. It's not. It, this shit made me actually want to go back and read Jung, and I don't want to read Jung, but the fact that the, there are three characters talking about the different, like, phases of Jungian life, it's more considered than I ever dared it would actually be. Ryan, have you forgotten there's a third meaning to red will become white? What's, what's the third meaning, Fletcher? The end of two. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Layers upon layers. Hot damn. This is also too like we finally get the word Merkaba, which um I don't know. Maybe maybe next episode is going to be the episode where we can camp out on Jewish mysticism. But um Merkaba was a So glad we don't have Matt. <laughs> oh, it you was... don't want to talk about Jewish orbital lasers right now? <laughs> It's like a it's like a thread of Jewish mysticism that predates Kabbalah mysticism, and it relates to the parts in the Book of Ezekiel and other texts that actually describe the seat and chariot of the gods or of God rather, and like it teaches both the of the possibility of making a sublime journey to God and also of the ability of man to draw down divine powers to earth, which is now what we know the SOCE that, you know, council of people sitting together are, were obsessed with transcending humanity and like finding God's realm and bringing it to the realm of earth. It just like, yeah, they were sailing. Yeah. It is just a bunch of shitty references to other anime but it successfully picks its shitty references in a way where it can tie them all together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's reference laden, but in a way that makes an internal sense. And also like it has a philosophy that underpins it that I didn't expect it to have. I guess that philosophy might boil down to just like fuck around and find out. But, you know, whatever. We should uh, we should wrap this here and come back to this in the next episode where we will just basically wrap on the game also. Word. Yeah. Here's my party chat. Because Rubido removed his limiters this episode, so did I. I'm God now. 99, all skills, all stats, everyone. <laughs> Hell yeah.
took the I'm weights off. Fight God and win. Am I ever gonna get those uh, other two skills I can see hanging out in Junior's tree? Yeah, if you want to grind. Well, how do you how do you get them? Uh, I think one is plot related, and then the next one shows. Oh. Yes. Um. If it if you never, I think one of them might be if you never equipped the Markov gun or the Makarov gun. I think that's how you get one of them. God damn it! I just sold that. <laughs> that's totally off memory that that could be incorrect but i think that you do get one of his hidden skills from just equipping the makarov gun that guinan gives you okay well i definitely sold it and never used it because it was one attack power weaker gotta love it baby <laughs> anyhow yeah uh, i'm pretty sure plot stuff is how you get those last pair all right well fuck it oh let's do commercials do we have commercials we want to do really quick you can find all of my works at hellscaper.com you can listen to my music uh, on SoundCloud at Catastrophizer and on Bandcamp at canonanddevarin.bandcamp.com. You can check out our other podcast. That's this one, but uh, Final Fantasy fourteen, and as well as our extremely depressing uh, Patreon bonuses for the anime podcast by visiting patreon.com slash pitchdrop and kicking in as little as a buck a month. And that will be all. For this episode, we will see you in two weeks for the end of the video game. Peace out, fuckers. Bye-bye. Farewell. <laughs>